Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, host of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Clinical Guidelines podcast series. Today, we're going to be discussing the official 2020 Clinical Practice Guideline of the Infectious Diseases Society of America on Diagnosis and Management of Babesiosis. Joining us today is one of the chairs of the Guidelines Committee, Dr. Peter Krauss. Dr. Krauss is a senior research scientist in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health in the Yale School of Public Health and Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Dr. Krauss, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here joining us. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. Babesiosis is a worldwide emerging disease that's caused by parasites that infect red blood cells. It's transmitted in the United States primarily by the hard-bodied tick, Exodes scapularis, or the deer tick or blackleg tick. Babesiosis rarely is transmitted by other means, particularly blood transfusion of infected blood, organ transplantation, or even perinatally. There are a hundred different species of Babesia that infect wild and domestic animals, and only a small subset of these infect humans. Babesia microti, the most common cause of human Babesiosis, is endemic, occurs annually in the Northeast and upper Midwest parts of the United States. It's gonna be important to understand where it occurs when we'll talk as we will shortly about when we need to think about it. Dr. Krauss, can you discuss the clinical manifestations of babesiosis and also particularly that question that I think is really tough for a lot of clinicians, when should we be thinking about it? The, the most common symptoms, Neil, are of babesiosis are fever, fatigue, chills, sweats, headache, and poor appetite. Uh, there are a number of other symptoms um, that have been reported and these include muscle and joint pain, neck stiffness, coughing, shortness of breath, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, and weight loss. Um, some patients, and especially those who have a weakened immune system, develop very severe illness, and uh, that usually, or that requires hospital admission, sometimes ICU admission. And uh, among immunocompromised patients uh, with babesiosis, the fatality rate can be as high as 20%. And who are these immunocompromised patients? Well, they're patients at the extremes of age, newborn infants and those over 50 uh, years of age, patients with cancer, uh, HIV AIDS, chronic heart or lung disease, those who lack a spleen and patients on immunosuppressive drugs, uh, as well as those who acquire the infection through blood transfusion. So you mentioned when we should think about the possibility of babesiosis. So this, uh, one should think about this in a patient who lives in or has traveled through a Babesia endemic area, specifically the Northeastern United States and the Northern Midwestern United States. There's also some Babesiosis um, of a different species, Babesia duncani on the, far, on the West Coast. Uh, the number of cases are far fewer there than the uh, Babesia microti cases in the Northeast and Northern Midwest. Um, so you'd make the diagnosis in a patient who has either lived or traveled through an endemic area, um, and um, uh, someone who becomes ill during the uh, tick season, which is the late spring, summer, or early fall, when ticks are active and people are outdoors. Now, you can theoretically get this disease in midwinter in one of two ways. One, that there's an adult tick that, that uh, transmits the disease, you get bitten, but that's very uncommon. The other way would be blood transfusion. And um, 
because this organism can survive in blood and because the incubation period after a blood transfusion can be uh, several months, um, it really can occur year round. But most of the disease is occurring in the late spring, uh, summer and early fall. Um, if a person has a history of tick bite, that increases the likelihood that there is babesiosis, but most people are unaware of a tick bite who developed the disease. Um, and the disease, as I mentioned, rarely through blood transfusion. So one has to think about that or ask about that uh, as well if you're suspecting uh, the disease. It's a tough clinical decision because, as you said, the symptoms are uh, really pretty, uh, if, I won't even say unremarkable, but pretty common, myalgias, fevers. So it really does require a high index of suspicion. And I imagine knowing your local epidemiology of disease, is that, is that right? Exactly right. And, um, uh, you know, there's certain characteristics of the disease uh, one, that um, can can tip one off. I mean, persistent fever, uh, sweats, uh, especially uh, chills um, are characteristic, but uh, it is difficult. And I mean, a summer viral illness can uh, mimic this as some of the other tick-borne diseases such as Lyme disease or uh, anaplasmosis. So it's, it's not always so easy to make the diagnosis, but when a patient has continued fever uh, more than a week, um, and uh, especially with uh, drenching night sweats, Certainly, you'd be thinking about this. That, that's really that's really helpful. Uh, th those clinical pearls. Now, you mentioned Lyme disease, and can you talk a little a bit about co-infection with Lyme disease and babesiosis? Sure. Um, well, um, ticks can carry uh, multiple pathogens. Um, there are seven pathogens transmitted by the Ixodes scapularis tick, also known as the deer tick or black-legged tick, and uh, <coughs> ticks can be uh, infected with uh, several of these pathogens, and they can transmit several of them to humans. So um, uh, people can get co-infected, and uh, the, the greatest number of uh, co-infections that I've uh, experienced or, of, uh, or I'm aware of are uh, three, three infections. But uh, Lyme disease and babesiosis are, uh, you know, uh, do occur not uncommonly. And um, the other, the other possibility is that instead of being bitten by a single tick with multiple pathogens, it's also possibly be bitten by two ticks in, a, in, a, in the near, in, you know, within a few days, let's say, and then be co-infected in that manner. Um, and because Lyme disease is more common than babesiosis, the percentage of patients who have co-infection with Lyme disease is uh, less than those who have babesiosis and uh, who have babesiosis. And if you look at that part of it, of those who have babesiosis, what percentage get Lyme? So the percentages are uh, in, in, the, in the published, in the literature, uh, between two and 20%, depending on the, the uh, geographic location, uh, will uh, develop co-infection. Um, that is Lyme disease patients will develop babesiosis. Whereas if you look at babesiosis patients, uh, those the percentage infected with Lyme is something in the in the range of 20 to 30 percent. I will mention also there are a number of areas, a large number, uh, uh, large regions in the United States where Lyme disease exists, babesiosis does not. There is no region in the United States where babesiosis is present and Lyme is not. So wherever uh, uh, babesiosis, Lyme is going to be, um, uh, will be there. Um, so. Um, that's, that's important. It's important to, as you've uh, alluded to, it's important to know the local, uh, the local uh, ecology uh, and, and epidemiology of these diseases.
So typically someone will present with Lyme, with what we'll treat as Lyme disease with an erythema migraines rash. We often don't do further testing. They come in, they have a history of being outdoors in the woods in a, in a Lyme endemic area. When should we be thinking, when should we also test for babesiosis? Because I think the description I just gave of how we often treat Lyme is very common. And I think often we're not thinking of babesiosis. Should we be, and what should trigger that thought? Sure, the, um, uh, certainly in patients who are being treated with uh, doxycycline or amoxicillin for, or another antibiotic, you know, one of the cephalosporins for, um, for Lyme disease uh, who, who, and, and do not respond well to the antibiotic. They're having persistent symptoms. Um, <clears throat> one should um, think very, um, very carefully about the possibility of babesiosis in those patients uh, because uh, the antibiotics used to treat Lyme disease <clears throat> are not effective against um, babesiosis. So that's, that's critical. And I, I'm glad that you went over that because I think that it's in some ways um, easy for us to understand that babesiosis exists in you know, endemic areas, but it's harder to translate that into clinical practice. So uh, recognizing one, that the same antibiotics don't treat Lyme disease and babesiosis. And two, for people who are not responding, who go on to have fevers, often symptoms of Lyme disease, if we're seeing them at that point and don't respond as expected, to really think about babesiosis. And I know you also mentioned to think about it probably with a lower threshold for testing in patients with, uh, who are immunocompromised. Um, if babesiosis is on our differential, what tests should we order to confirm that diagnosis? Um, before I, I, I mention that, let me mention one other aspect of co-infection. Patients who have Lyme disease and babesiosis at least some studies have shown, or several studies have shown, that uh, these patients are are have a greater number of symptoms, perhaps a little sicker, uh, that and 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 the duration of uh, illness lasts a little longer if you are co-infected than if you have Lyme disease alone. So that'd be another. If you have a patient who's, especially some patients, very seriously ill, they have an EM rash, but they, you know, one should certainly think about other co-infecting agents, including babesiosis. I think that's really helpful. And, and I think that uh, is incredibly important in terms of helping uh, our clinicians understand when to really think about it. Right, right. So in terms of diagnosis uh, and the confirmation, um, as we've discussed, uh, the uh, symptoms uh, are fairly nonspecific. So if you're thinking about this, you, you absolutely have need to get laboratory testing to confirm. And the two main laboratory tests that are done for confirmation are a blood smear uh, and a PCR. So, um, and, and in many areas, a, a blood smear can be obtained very rapidly. And, um, and you need, of course, a skilled microscopist, but most hospital laboratories, people will, there will be uh, people who will be able to make the diagnosis uh, look, uh, find, or identify the organism on thin smear. Um, and the percentage of infected red cells um, uh, is, is important in terms, of under, in, in terms of the ease of diagnosis. So some patients will have a parasitemia, a percent of uh, red cells infected somewhere in the area of 1%, one, one, 1% or sometimes less. 
Um, but it, it ranges from one to like 80%. Obviously, generally, if you get above 4%, uh, the patient's going to be usually uh, pretty ill uh, with that. But uh, patients who are less uh, severely ill with a lower percentage, you know, the diagnosis still can be made uh, looking at the blood smear. It just, one has to do a, a, a large number of fields, usually two to 300 microscopic fields to, to really uh, say that, uh, you know, the organism is not there. But if you're still suspicious, um, uh, you can go do a PCR, which is more, which is more uh, sensitive. Uh, this, of course, is amplification of the Babesia DNA. Um, some, in some areas, people will just go right to the PCR, uh, and I think either is acceptable. Uh, but, but you know, if if you if the, so, because the PCR is more sensitive, if you uh, still are thinking of the possibility of babesiosis with a negative blood smear, you can repeat the blood smear. Let's say the next day. Uh, or you can just go right to PCR. If the PCR is negative, uh, the chance of babesiosis is really remote. Um, on, on, uh, microscopically, one sees a typical ring form, and that ring form can be confused sometimes with Plasmodium falciparum, uh, but of course there's not a lot of the cause of malaria or a cause of malaria. There's not a lot of malaria in this country. It's all imported, uh, but you know it certainly occurs. So one has to be aware of that. A good microscopist should be able to distinguish Babesia from, from uh, Plasmodium falciparum. Um, you can also make the diagnosis by a fourfold rise in antibody. Um, that is, it, but this is not very helpful acutely. So you can uh, test the patient. If you want to retrospectively make the diagnosis, you can get a, you, if you have an acute serum that has negative, there's no antibody, a detectable antibody, and then four week, three to four weeks later, you have a positive test that will then tell you that this was babesiosis or this is babesiosis. Uh, but a very important point is a single antibody test does not mean that, 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 that the symptoms that patient has is due to babesiosis because you could have an enter, summer enterovirus and if you get a single positive result, uh, the antibody result, that could reflect a disease, uh, a babesiosis that occurred a year or even two years earlier. So treatment really should uh, depend on not just a single antibody test, but you really want to identify the organism on smear or PCR. You know, it seems like it's really important for the clinician to really know that this is what they're looking for, because I'm going to guess from what you said, with the percentage of infected red blood cells on microscopy often being less than 4%, that there's a reasonably high false negative rate when you send for the smear, particularly in areas of the country where they're not seeing that a lot. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that um, you're, you're right. Uh, if there's a small percentage of uh, red cells infected, especially if you count, let's say, 100 fields, uh, you know, or, or, or 50 fields, you, know, you don't do a real thorough review, you can certainly miss it. So false negatives certainly are, are possible, as are false positives, because sometimes there's debris on the slide and uh, it will be mistaken for, uh, for Babesia. But uh, an experienced microscopist should be able to make uh, that call, should be able to distinguish between debris and, um, and the organism. Makes sense. Let's go on to talk about treatment. What are the preferred treatment regimens? Yeah, the treatment regimens are essentially atovaquone and azithromycin and clindamycin and quinine. Uh, atovaquone and azithromycin has a great advantage. It's equally effective uh, as is clindamycin and quinine there are far fewer side effects. 
So in a uh, randomized controlled trial that, that we carried out a number of years ago, uh, compared the two directly and uh, the uh, side effects from clindamycin quinine are something like 72% or 70% or so of these patients had some kind of side effect. And I think about a third of them, they had to either curtail the dose or stop altogether. Whereas atopicone azithromycin is much better tolerated and not that there's no, there are no side effects, but they're minimal uh, generally and it's generally well tolerated. So for mild to moderate disease, atopicone azithromycin by mouth for seven to 10 days is the recommended uh, dosage. For severe cases, it, it again is atopicone azithromycin initially. In this case, you could give the atopicone by mouth and azithromycin by IV, by intravenous uh, dosing. Um, if, you, if the patient does not respond well to that, you can go with uh, clindamycin and quinine as an alternative route, uh, the clindamycin given by IV, the quinine by mouth. Okay. Now, the guidelines also discuss exchange transfusion. Where does that come into play? Uh, exchange transfusion is, um, uh, a, uh, is essentially replacing infected blood with uninfected blood. So, uh, patient, so in patients who have severe disease, very, you know, life-threatening disease, or even, let's say, severe disease with a, generally a parasitemia above 10%, um, and uh, uh, some kind of uh, end organ compromise like ARDS or, um, or um, renal or liver, you know, severe liver or renal impairment that we sometimes see, those patients uh, are, are candidates for exchange. Now, exchange transfusion is thought to be uh, life-saving in some of these patients. The problem is there's never been a, a, a formal uh, a prospective uh, clinical trial to, to, to prove that. So we don't, we don't, we can't be absolutely certain that exchange transfusion is helpful, but it really, it does appear to be helpful. Uh, uh, you can go from a very high parasitemia down to a, you know, so uh, let's say 10, 15% down to 1% or so. And you're also uh, theoretically removing toxins. Uh, cytokine, you know, cytokine storm is, thought to be potentially a pathogenic mechanism, you, 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 know, you remove that. So essentially it's a procedure where you insert a catheter or catheters, you exchange the, you can exchange part of the patient's blood volume, let's say a quarter or a half, or do an entire uh, body exchange. It's generally a safe procedure. Obviously you need a skill, you need skilled personnel to do this. Um, and you'd want to you'd want to make sure that the hospital where this is done is experienced in this, and you'd have an ID consultant, I mean a hematologist, ID consultant, and so on, yeah. blood transfusion experts uh, to do this. I I think you know the the recommendation in the guidelines is to do an exchange uh, or to strongly consider that in a patient who has very severe disease. So Peter, we've made the diagnosis, we've begun treatment for that usual patient. What are the recommendations with regard to monitoring? Yes, monitoring is very important and because not all patients respond well to therapy or maybe not initially. So we recommend for immunocompetent patients that, they, um, that the Babesia parasitemia be monitored during acute illness uh, with peripheral blood smears. But once the patient is better, once the patient is improved, um, it's really uh, no longer, you know, uh, monitoring the patient's no longer needed. Um, if you have a patient with pretty mild disease, you may not even need to monitor. Uh, you can just see if they're doing, you know, better symptomatically. But mild to moderate disease, 
Um, it, it, certainly if they're in the hospital, let's say with Meyer disease, you would want to every, uh, depending on what the parasitemia is, monitor these patients with blood smear. But if they're immunocompetent, almost all immunocompetent patients are going to respond well uh, to current therapy, occasionally not, but uh, most of the time. And so monitoring really should, does not need to be continued after the patient becomes asymptomatic or just has a mild symptom residua. Um, it is true that patients remain infected sometimes for months uh, after the infection asymptomatically. And this is one of the reasons why we get into trouble with blood transfusion because patients will feel well, uh, may not even been diagnosed to have abesiosis, uh, give blood and then transmit. But essentially monitoring is, is not needed, as I say, in immunocompetent patients after these symptoms have resolved. For immunocompromised patients, it's a different story. There you want to monitor very carefully during the acute illness. Um, you know, it, it just really varies. I mean, you may want to get daily checks initially uh, and then uh, you know, less frequently, but you would monitor with blood smear. And um, once the blood smear becomes negative and the patient's feeling well, you can stop. But uh, you really want to continue to monitor even after their symptoms have resolved uh, with blood smear. Uh, because if you, uh, there have been a number of cases reported where uh, with very low parasitemia, uh, this is re relapsed in patients who are immunocompromised. So you really want to follow them until the uh, smear is negative. Um, you can also consider PCR testing on these individuals, but again, PCR is uh, highly sensitive uh, and it may be that you would be monitoring them for months uh, until you get a negative PCR. But that's another uh, potential uh, mode for, for monitoring these patients. That's so helpful. Uh, we're getting toward the end of our podcast. Any additional thoughts or final comments that you want to share? Uh, well, Neil, I would say that uh, people should, when they think of babesiosis, should realize that this is a, uh, an emerging problem, a worldwide problem, uh, and that it is endemic in the Northeast and Northern Midwestern United States. Um, it, it is caused, as you said, by babesia parasites that infect red, red blood cells transmitted primarily by ticks, but also through blood transfusion, rarely through blood transfusion, organ transplantation, or perinatally. Um, if you think a patient might have babesiosis, you should obtain a blood smear and or a babesia microti PCR, or if you're on the West Coast, the babesia duncani PCR. Current therapy is generally quite effective, atovaquone and azithromycin, uh, but patients with severe disease uh, need to be managed very carefully, and the alternative of clindamycin and quinine should be kept in mind along with the exchange transfusion. Peter, this was so helpful. I know I've learned a lot today in, in our discussion. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. I think most of us know where endemically babesiosis is. I think the tougher questions, which you covered so nicely, are when to think about it, how to what, to, what tests to do to make the diagnosis. And then we talked about treatment as well as monitoring. Uh, a full version of the guidelines is available for people who want to look more in depth at the IDSA website at uh, idsociety.org. Uh, Dr. Krauss, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Neil. It was really a pleasure discussing Babesios with you. Appreciate it. For the IDSA, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and thank you for listening. <laughs>